Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Rita Stuti. I'm the head of the anthropology department here at the LSE. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this year's Memorial Malinowski Lecture. Now, as some of you might know, unlike other memorial lectures that tend to recognize the seniority of the chosen speaker, the Malinowski Lecture is designed to celebrate the accomplishments of younger scholars, scholars who are discovering new intellectual horizons, who ask new questions and experiment with new projects, and who are in the process of making their mark on the discipline. So with this in mind, I'm extremely pleased to introduce our speaker for tonight's lecture, Dr. Rebecca Empson. Rebecca is a lecturer in the anthropology department at UCL. She has carried out extensive fieldwork in the Mongolian countryside, which she brings to life with her beautiful writing, together with the people, the animals, the dwellings that occupy it and transform it. Rebecca has published a single-authored monograph called Harnessing Fortune, Personhood, Memory and Place in Mongolia. She has also edited several volumes on a wide range of topics, and she has curated an exhibition at the Cambridge Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology on how bodies are imagined in art and in the social and natural sciences. Now, Rebecca's dynamism is truly impressive, apart from all the publications I've just mentioned. She has been awarded recently a highly prized ERC grant for a project on economic growth in Mongolia. This project will no doubt build on her already extensive knowledge of the region, which I'm sure she will share with us tonight in her lecture entitled An Economy of Temporary Possession. So please join me in warmly welcoming our Malinowski lecturer, Rebecca Emson. Well, thank you, um, and uh, thank you to Rita and to the LSE Anthropology Department for inviting me to give this prestigious lecture. It's a great honour, and um, to use a phrase that I've often heard people use on these occasions, I'm delighted to be here. Okay, can you all hear me? The microphone's working, yeah. Bewildered and somewhat confused by the different ways of owning land and wealth in a small district in northeast Mongolia. On my return a few years ago, I sought clarification from a local government official. Even though it was a holiday, she kindly opened up the government building, drew back the curtains in her office, and invited me to sit down on a chair next to her. What followed was an animated conversation going back and forth over different kinds of ownership. About halfway through, we reached a pause. She gave me a quizzical look from behind her steel-rimmed glasses and said in a slightly frustrated tone, Rebecca, you do understand the difference between land ownership and the temporary possession of land, don't you? 
Afraid that I might look completely stupid, but wanting to understand the distinction, I took a gamble and offered a slightly hesitant no in reply. For the rest of this evening, I'm going to try and unpack the implications of her distinction between outright ownership and temporary possession. I suggest that it's only through exploring the nuances of these types of ownership that we can begin to understand the way that larger economic forces are materialising on the ground. So I'm going to focus on this particular and often overlooked economic form. It's in its Mongolian instantiation, but it's worth noting at the outset that concern with temporary possession goes back all the way to Malinowski. In his work on the cultural logics of the Kula, Malinowski noted that no man keeps any of his objects for any length of time in his possession. Ownership, he noted in Kula, is quite a special economic relation, whereby each man has an enormous number of articles uh, passing through his hands during his lifetime, of which he enjoys a temporary possession. This temporary uh, ownership allows him to draw, draw a great deal of renown to exhibit his article, to tell how he obtained it, and to plan to whom he's going to give it. Indeed, it was the duration of ownership as something temporary that marked the exchange of cooler valuables as different from Euro-American forms of ownership. Now, while most of the world is suffering the effects of a global financial crisis, Mongolia, an independent country located between China and Russia, is experiencing economic growth for, for the fifth year in a row. Fueled by vast mineral reserves, including large deposits of gold, copper and coal, further growth is very much hoped for. Looking at the way in which people engage with commodities and new forms of land ownership, we'll see that these turn on modes of temporary possession, which are extending across different spheres through varied practices. Focusing on these practices, I'm going to highlight two theoretical points. The first explores the limited purchase of arguments concerned with the performativity of economics. Here I'm going to be engaging with a growing body of literature in the anthropology of economics that looks at the role of language and other technical devices to articulate, facilitate, as well as bring into being particular economic realities. Although economic prediction may go some way in shaping the economy in its own image, I will argue that people also make choices about how to act and that these are influenced by a whole range of other factors. These activities lead to heterogeneous forms of contemporary capitalism that are not so-called alternatives to more prevalent forms of economic activity. So this is to acknowledge that capitalism is not something that we can take for granted. Even though we're familiar with it, it's not being reproduced in the same way everywhere. Different economic logics, both new and customary, are employed and exist as modalities that people move between. In saying this, um, I suggest that Mongolia is not becoming more capitalist, but that people in Mongolia are actively shaping the form of capitalism that's emerging in their encounter with different kinds of global forms. Taking this approach, I'm not only concerned with substantive differences, but the way that local concepts and ideas, such as temporary possession, come to act as the ground or base 
from which widespread capitalist policies are enacted and experienced. Understanding different forms of exchange through local concepts has been the hallmark of a long line of seminal works that have come to shape economic anthropology. From Malinowski's work on the cultural logics of the cooler to Firth's focus on forms of allocation and Bloch and Parry's work on money and the morality of exchange. Following this approach takes me to my second theoretical focus, which is concerned with forms of explanation in anthropology. When local concepts are used to understand global forms, we're taking a well-trodden path. This path seeks to highlight how alternative economic logics make sense on their own terms. This is to illuminate difference, often through the act of comparison. At the same time, it's equally important to draw attention to the way in which people seek engagement with global forms as a way to transform themselves as subjects. This leads us to the politics of recognition and the need to be aware that it's often this very difference that may become the basis for for perpetuating forms of subordination and inequality. So I'm going to conclude with the suggestion that we need to find a balance between these approaches, that people alternate between different economic logics and the way in which they manage this alternation is generative of its own outcomes. Now, predicted economic growth in Mongolia has perhaps been most poignantly captured in the term the wolf economy, coined by Mongolia's now ex-vice minister of finance to describe how Mongolia, and here I quote him, could potentially leapfrog a Western development model, drawing lessons from the Middle East and be inspired by stories of Asian tigers to build their own model. For many Mongolians, the wolf is an attractive, if fearful, symbol. It's thought to bring luck, but it's also hunted as a predator, thus hinting at the way in which economic growth could bring prosperity or, alternatively, generate widespread social and environmental destruction. Comparison with the Middle East is also evidence of fears such as potential overheating of the economy or Dutch disease where the exploitation of natural resources leads to a sharp rise in the value of local currency, resulting in so-called resource curse. Fears of the political and social pitfalls associated with the development of a rentier state, deriving most of its income from the external exploitation of its resources, also abound. So aware of different kinds of economic and political disenfranchisement being played out Um, elsewhere, Mongolians, um, including the government of Mongolia, are seeking a different kind of solution. But at this juncture, the broader issue facing Mongolia is that of the distribution of income generated by the exploitation of this uh, mineral wealth, as well as regulation of the environmental damage that's taking place. Now, in spite of the government of Mongolia securing deals with various mining companies, the country is experiencing very rapid inflation, declining foreign investment um, and fluctuating commodity prices. Given this palpable sense of hope, as well as increasing insecurity, I want to examine today what impact this economic landscape of very uncertain potential has on people's day-to-day lives. Certainly, different kinds of economic language and policies have been used to bring about a sense of hope. 
these terms and phrases, as Holmes has noted elsewhere, have come to operate not so much as descriptive markers, but as communicative means for modelling prospective economic uh, phenomena. Carefully calibrated communications are not merely projections of economic activity. There are also instruments for shaping and defining that activity, guiding experiences and attracting investment. They are, in short, performative. To claim that economics is performative is, of course, to claim that economics does things rather than simply describing an external reality. And at the most generic level, this connotes a kind of theoretical stance that argues that phenomena only exist in the act of doing them, and they have to be continually performed in order to exist at all. So what kind of effect has the use of the phrase the wolf economy generated in a circular sense on the economy itself? Well, the phrase has featured in the international media as a way to garner support and investment in the Mongolian mining sector and in promotional material of different kinds of investment packages. Wider policies associated with the wealth economy include mortgage and insurance schemes, the privatisation of land, monthly cash handouts to citizens, and access to a wide range of loans in order to diversify the economy. Mongolian politicians talk about Mongolia or Mingolia becoming the new Norway. Exclusive housing complexes have appeared with names such as Buddha Vista, and blacked-out 4x4s dominate the city's roads. Indeed, the wolf economy appears to be playing against an imagined and hoped-for future to create a particular present reality. And this interplay involves elements of approximation, guessing, trust and chance in much the same way as prophecy has traditionally played a role in how Mongolians perceive the future and play out their lives in the present. And like any prophecy, this involves processes of of interpretation through which people are shaping the prediction in various ways. Now, in the last year or so, belief in economic growth has begun to change from hopeful anticipation to mistrust and outright doubt. People are challenging this vision of the future based on the way in which things are actually turning out. To use Graeber's phrase, the paradox of performativity here points to the gap between the future imagined and the future experienced. In this gap, a retroactive logic erases past visions and the present seems like the only logical outcome. So this certainly chimes with the way in which this prophetic language is being internalised. In current manifestations, we can begin to discern these cracks between the vision and the reality, and people have begun to revise this prophecy in terms of present experiences. So it's it's exactly here, in this tension between hope and underlying mistrust of rhetorical and political power, that I suggest a new kind of subject is emerging and shaping the economy from the ground up. So I'm going to turn now to focus on the way in which this economic future is being realised through people's engagement with different policies that shape the wolf economy from the inside out through practices of temporary possession. In the small Ashinga district in northeast Mongolia, where I've been working for the past 15 years, a series of things stand out as markedly different from a few years ago. Aside from 24-hour electricity and mobile phone coverage, 
On my recent visit, I noticed the widespread availability of a range of different kinds of bank loans meant to encourage local businesses and inject money into the general economy. Despite widespread inflation, the Mongolian government is directing predicted future wealth into the development of a credit market, promoting different loans to people far from financial centres. Alongside the availability of loans, there are also new land laws being implemented within the administrative centre of the district. And these are an attempt to diversify the range of assets that can be used as collateral against the loans. Now, when discussing predicted economic growth, Sami Nashinga commented to me that the government had done the wrong thing, establishing contracts with foreign mining companies. This, they lamented, would result in Mongolia becoming an empty container, a khorsansav. However, the influx of cash into the general economy through bank loans has granted the potential for people to purchase a range of commodities that certainly give the appearance of economic growth. So far from being an empty container, the Mongolian countryside has been filled with shiny new motorbikes and trucks, televisions and refrigerators, washing machines and electric stoves, which have been purchased through different kinds of loans. Discussing how one of my friends obtained these items, I came to realise that none of them were fully owned by anybody, apart from the two banks in the district and a handful of wealthy big men who controlled the actual economy by granting private loans. So I'm going to present two cases now, one of a young man attempting to start his first business with friends and one of a middle-aged couple on their third business loan. Now you need a loan to live. If you don't have a loan, you can't live, my friend explained with a smile as he drove me in his glittering new truck across the district centre. You can't get a bank loan if you don't have a job. So I got one from my friend in order to purchase this truck. Bata got one from his father. Together with another friend, we bought this sawmill. Now, Bata had attended music school as a student. Unable to get a job as a singer, he was trying his luck at running a sawmill in the district. Visiting his sawmill, I was really excited for him. Through the help of his father's loan, he would be able to work with his school friend and cousin, who had also secured loans. Together, they would hopefully be able to make a living. Access to money here both allowed for exchange, so that they could purchase the necessary machinery, and was exchanged in the form of personal loan agreements between friends and relatives. After almost permanent unemployment as adults, Bata and his friends were proud of the resources that they'd managed to pool and the equipment that they had sourced. I soon learnt, however, that Bata's sawmill was just one of at least five new sawmills in the district, all of which had been purchased in the last year or so through different loans. So unless he was able to secure a really competitive price for his timber, it was unlikely that his project would succeed. He was under considerable amount of pressure. Um, His father had set him a time limit on the repayment and had even refused to see him until he proved he was making something of his venture. However, it seemed that a successful business was not really the end goal for Bata. Everyone, I came to learn, was juggling the rewards and pressures of different kinds of loans. Everyone was busy enacting businesses, and the material manifestation of this money was everywhere. However, many of the new businessmen and women 
didn't feel that they really owned any of the items they had purchased. They were mainly felt to be precariously on loan until they had either sold them to make up the collateral to pay back the loan or they were seized in repayment for the loan itself. And it's here that we can begin to trace uh, different kinds of practices of temporary possession. Bata's business was not going to last very long. In fact, it really ceased to be a business just a few months later when they sold their second load of timber but couldn't pay for the petrol and electricity needed to run the saw and the trucks to get more logs. Fifteen years ago, I'd known these young men as boys with uncertain futures. Now, in the process of trying to establish something, they had become the kind of people who have the connections needed to pool resources in order to temporarily own such possessions. Things are starting to change here, he commented to me as we watched the logs being pushed through the machinery. We have the chance now to start and do a range of different things. Loans, it seemed, were valued because they allowed people to perform certain activities and hold custodianship even for a limited period of time over certain items. The goal for Bata and others, then, was not so much to gain wealth in capital but to maintain and expand a wealth in people. Maintaining this social capital meant that people depended on you and you on them in return. While busily sourcing funds and establishing connections for different kinds of businesses, Bata and his friends were also visibly enacting the kind of activity predicted by the wolf economy. So I turn now to my second example. Dalgarma and her husband were herders who sold most of their animals when their children got married and they moved to the district centre. A few years ago, they secured their first business loan from the local bank. Since then, they've managed to get two more and each time their interest rate decreases. In order to obtain their current loan, Dalgarma needed to present an application to the bank, including her passport and how much money she currently has in immovable property such as her house, her livestock, her television, refrigerator and motorbike. If she can't repay the loan in a year's time, there is the threat that these items will be confiscated, even though I should say that no one knew of anyone this had actually happened to. Well, uh, with the money, they've created a so-called milk-collecting place, a sunitasig, to which local herders bring milk in the summer for a small return. Dalgerma and her husband pass this milk through a hand-driven milk machine and they sell their cream, which they store in metal containers underground. From the skimmed milk, they make dried curds that can be sold for double the price in the city in the winter. In addition, they sell eggs from chickens and homemade bread, as well as a range of different vegetables uh, available in the late summer. So Dalgerma and her husband are extremely busy people. Yet they only just make enough money from these endeavours to cover their loan repayments. And they're rarely able to keep even a small profit for themselves. I've been collecting milk like this for many years, Dalgerma commented to me one evening. But I can't do it again. It's too much work for too small a return. Despite her lament, I knew that they would continue. While not making much profit... Being the centre of these activities meant that they were always involved in ongoing forms of exchange with people at different levels in the district. 
Maintaining these relations, she had even been awarded a medal by the provincial government for Businesswoman of the Year. Now, everyone has a loan of some kind, said Dalgarima one day when we were looking at her account books. Loans from individual people can be difficult to repay because the interest rate can be extremely high. But you can also get monthly credit payment plans to help you purchase things like motorbikes, televisions and furniture. But you have to pay some of it up front. We bought our refrigerator and washing machine in this way. Looking out the window, she murmured, without a loan, what kind of life can you have? What kind of life indeed? The kind of life she was lamenting was one that she had been living just a few years ago when she wasn't surrounded by all these different commodities. Being able to secure these kinds of objects certainly chimes with local ideas of what it means to be modern. Along with a new freezer, they also had a small electric stove, a motorbike, a TV and DVD player, all purchased through different monthly payment schemes. For some... These were the material manifestation of the wolf economy. Being able to obtain them was confirmation to others of their participation in it. When looking at Delgama's account books, however, I realised that money was not the only thing on loan. Different kinds of transactions were involved in her businesses. Her account book traced complex exchanges, including bartered goods. Each page had a name at the top with dates running down one side and the amount of milk delivered. And next to this, she noted the word paid for money or in other items such as bread or eggs. So here bread was being used to pay for the milk deposited and for certain people it seemed money was never really exchanging hands. We don't call this giving a loan, she said. It's just called giving milk money. For example, if someone gives me milk and I've got no cash, then I'll give them a loaf of bread. In my notebook, I note if people have taken things without paying. Sometimes it's extremely difficult to keep track of this, and they may pay me back much later with milk or something else such as containers. Some people owe me a lot for the things they've taken. They say they can't repay because they don't have any money. I can't do anything. I'm just waiting. While some exchanges involve the transfer of money, forms of barter often lead to delayed transactions. They involve the exchange of seasonal foods and services available only at certain times of year. They also involve people who know each other well and come to inform relations in particular ways. In fact, two women who helped Algoma with her projects were never paid with money. Instead, they were given cream and bread or some new shoes in return for their help. Later, I asked Dalgema where she kept running her businesses through these transactions when the profit margin was so small and the work was so arduous. Ah, I'd like to stop, she said, but if I don't do it, I'll feel how much my body hurts and there will be too much time to think. One might also argue that the reason for maintaining her business ventures is so that Dalgema can nourish certain kinds of relations and maintain herself as a particular kind of person in the district. She sees herself as participating in a trajectory towards change, a movement towards development, but also, in the short term, staving off the drawn-out uncertainty associated with the early post-socialist period and maintaining at least the appearance of being different from that. So from these rather brief accounts, uh, we can begin to see a tension 
between a sense of hope in the new economy and the risks involved in making a commitment to that hope. For people located some distance from the centre of economic predictions, things are changing, but in a rather different way from that anticipated. The widespread availability of loans means that while money does circulate, it's not being retained or accumulated in any sphere, and many loans are simply being written off. While money is flooding the economy and new kinds of commodities are becoming available, these items are not really owned by the people currently using them. Indeed, money attributed with uh, uncertain ownership and prone to rapid inflation is not the choice of currency for everyday goods, which are mostly circulated through barter. Keeping these goods outside of monetary transactions could be viewed as a reflection of the doubt and anxiety people have about predicted economic growth. It could also be seen as a direct threat to the performativity of the market. The proliferation of bank loans in the Mongolian countryside is just one instance of the way in which economic policies associated with capitalist logics are reenacted and shaped locally. And I use the term locally because it need not, of course, mean uh, other. As anthropologists of finance have begun to show, formal modes of banking are just as social and embedded as forms of barter and informal lending. Indeed, forms of financialization like microcredit schemes and low-interest bank loans are almost always shaped and determined by different situations, coexisting with other economic forms. So from the perspective of people who are using them, these financial innovations are not necessarily experienced as specific interventions administered in order to diversify the economy. More often, they're experienced as part of a range of different things that appear within a general landscape of change. In this regard, we may note that while we as anthropologists may stand aside from our ethnographic material and explain how certain policies are the outcome of wider neoliberal reforms, we also need to capture the way in which such reforms appear for the people with whom we're working. Often they're part of a landscape that's changing, but is always somehow also the same. And one way to capture this changing landscape within a field of familiarity is to highlight a particular cultural logic where change is domesticated and made familiar on local terms. This is precisely what we see in another feature of this changing landscape. At the same time as loans were being granted by the two banks in the district centre, the local government was also involved in a similar process of allotting shares. This time, the shares were not portions of money, but plots of land in the district centre itself that could, for the first time, be owned by individuals in the form of private property. When land was being privatised and loans were being granted at the same time, the two were seen as intrinsically linked, not least because the people who administered the allocation of land and loans were also, politically speaking, part of the same network of people. Prior to the allocation of private land, people commonly built new houses in their relatives' enclosures. Uh, With individual plots, however, many have ended up with land that's not at all suitable to live on and is, for example, prone to frequent flooding or is some distance from the facilities of the district itself. 
So this means that while um, these individual plots have generally been claimed by people, most of them remain uninhabited with these kind of partial fences surrounding them. Instead, people tend to live together in these more core plots, and the empty plots are owned as a kind of collective. Uh, They're temporarily inhabited by different people who may be visiting the district or uh, rented out to different family and friends. In fact, each enclosure or plot acts more like a seasonal pasture, a place that can be occupied by different individuals as and when they need. This, then, is another example of the way in which temporary possession of these individual plots shapes idea about private ownership. The process of allocating portions of land for private ownership and then holding them collectively seems on some level to echo the process of portioning off money in the form of loans to individuals and then passing the commodities gained through these loans to different people. Each involves allotting a portion to an individual who uses it for a fixed period of time and then passes it on to others uh, in order for them to use it. Now, during my conversation with the government official mentioned at the beginning of this lecture, I came to understand that the distinction between temporary possession and private ownership is extremely marked. Herders who make up the majority of people in the countryside do not own the pasture land that they use. Instead, they're in temporary possession of their winter and spring encampments that mark them as exclusive users of these places with rights over resources such as hay, water and pasture. This land is not classed as personal property but rather grants the herder temporary possession of these places leading to what's usually referred to as usufructory access. Land as pasture remains a public resource used by herders but regulated by the local government. And it's worth noting here that in the Mongolian language there are subtle distinctions between private and personal property, between temporary possession, a system of leasing land as well as forms of collective ownership. But I don't have time to go into all those distinctions here. Sneath notes that these kinds of custodial rights to pasture land are rights over resources and always exist within what he calls a wider socio-political order. This order, which he terms a socio-technical system, is composed of the local government as well as the spiritual owners or masters of the land. So within local beliefs in this area, these spiritual entities control the natural conditions and are given offerings at annual mountain ceremonies and throughout the year in uh, daily milk libations. So herders here are always in a position of custodianship to others who grant them the use of the land. Respecting this relation, people are rewarded with the bounty or fortune of their animals. So here then are two different notions of ownership. One custodial and temporary, based on access to shared resources, and the other based on the idea of individual ownership over private property. Elsewhere, I've suggested that the relationship between local people and bank workers is comparable to the relationship between local people and the spiritual owners of the land. Each temporarily grants possession of a portion of money in the form of a bank loan or land in the form of pasture. The surplus generated out of this temporary possession is in part used to appease those who grant you access to it in the first place. 
through annual offerings to local spirit masters or bribes to local bank workers. In drawing this kind of comparison, the idea of custodianship or temporary possession provides a kind of template from which to understand local ways of managing loans, as temporary possession of money uh, and commodities are repaid and resold. In this comparison, we can also see that while the distinction between temporary possession and private ownership may be legally marked, in practice the distinction is blurred, with the former often inflecting the latter. So that although prevalent, private ownership actually has a tentative hold on people's actual activities. Temporary possession thus becomes the vector through which people access resources in pasture land as well as commodities gained through bank loans. For example, we've seen that many of the items purchased through loans are temporarily owned. They're obtained to generate things beyond their ownership and it's precisely this that means they can be sold on to others who may use them in the same way. One could, for example, trace the multiple owners of Dolgerma's large bread-making oven as not just a list of failed business ventures, but, like the exchange partners in the cooler, about the kinds of obligations, resources and forms of prestige that follow the exchange of these items among particular groups of individuals. Similarly, multiple people may access the same pasture over generations, but it's the resources and the animals reared in those places which is evidence of growth, not possession of the land itself. A feature of temporary possession is the importance placed on honouring different relations in order to gain access to resources. These networks of obligation, to use Sneath and Humphrey's term, are not simply born out of scarcity and lack. underlie a moral aesthetic concerned with the way in which relations should be carried out. They are, in short, a way of being a moral person. It was even suggested to me that if someone agrees to lend you money, it should be taken as a compliment, as a sign that they believe in your potential to actually become like them and be able to offer something useful in return. So here, then, is a context in which everyone is embedded in a variety of relations based on giver and receiver, master and custodian. And everyday language reflects this structural hierarchy. Indeed, the practice of nullifying one's debts is associated with an activity that one carries out uh, when nearing death. In contrast, to be alive is to manage the temporality of different obligations in strategic ways that will benefit the future. Being indebted to someone thus points to a kind of plentitude rather than simply lack. Temporary possession is then not something that undervalues ownership, but renders it an asset that facilitates further growth. While it underpins local forms of ownership, particularly among nomadic herders, it also extends to new forms of ownership of commodities and land. In fact, as we've seen, temporary possession is so pervasive that it eats into these new ideas of private property in various ways. An example of this might be privately owned cars, such as the highly valued 4x4 land cruiser, which may be privately owned but often treated in a temporary fashion, passing through different hands as they're sometimes used by their owners, sometimes used as collateral for loans, and sometimes actually loaned, when they may be borrowed by someone for a period of time simply to impress someone else. 
Here we may note too that temporary possession in its varied forms is perhaps a much more widespread phenomena, a feature of late capitalism more generally. Indeed, the practice of indebting yourself in multiple kinds of ways is emerging as a strategy, desired or not, all over the world by people exposed to different credit and mortgage systems. For people located at some distance from financial centres, taking part in the wolf economy involves initiating businesses and claiming a share of private property. These activities mark a hopeful attempt to generate a different kind of position for oneself, literally bringing forth an imagined future economy through participation in its prediction. One could argue that if interest rates were lower, then more profit uh, could be gained on these loans and they would start to look like and fit the economic models and systems with which we're familiar. However... This logic doesn't explain why people are taking part in these loans now. The reason for that, as I hope has become clearer, is bound up with cultivating an image of oneself as a modern person while also developing and maintaining different kinds of existing networks of obligation. On the other hand, extending modes of temporary possession beyond pasture land usage could also be seen as a sign, perhaps, of a general feeling of mistrust in the economy at large. No doubt this mistrust is generated by rapid inflation where money is losing much of its purchasing power. In this instance, it's safe to stick with known and fixed variables through barter uh, rather than risk squandering savings on food. So this is to take note of the more complex motivations that drive people towards different kinds of economic activities, including emotive feelings of trust and uncertainty. In fact, as we've seen here, money is relegated to spheres that are considered risky and insecure, to spheres that might not always bring rewards. And this could be seen as an indicator, perhaps, of the suspicion people have as to actual monetary growth in spite of its predictions. So while it may be that on a national level the economy is doing well, it's unclear that this will actually materialise in the general economy. What we see in the ideas and policies being propagated and exchanged in the Mongolian wolf economy is not so much a description of an emerging economy, but an attempt by economists and the government to create the normative conditions for a desired state. Viewing engagements with private property and bank loans as the outcome or experience of rapid socio-economic change is something which informs much of the literature on post-socialist transition. And as England and Leach have argued, it is perhaps to make a meta-narrative of modernity. Instead of seeing these economic engagements as endpoints, I suggest that they provide the basis for new and complex economic forms. That is, they may actualise a kind of pastoral or nomadic economics with the idea of temporary possession acting as the base. It comes as no surprise then that we can begin to see these ways of conceptualising ownership extending into the way in which Mongolia as a nation is granting access to its mineral resources. 
In making this point, I'm alluding to a kind of fractal logic to the way in which individual herders access resources in the land through temporary possession and the way the government is granting temporary possession to foreign mining companies, allowing them to use their, uh, to use their land to access resources of a very different kind. This, then, is yet another way in which uh, private ownership is made temporary. And since temporary possession doesn't sit particularly happily with these global capitalists, Mongolia is, through these practices, discouraging particular kinds of investment and going some way in shaping a very different future. Certainly, economic models are not being enacted as predicted What we're seeing, perhaps, is the way in which local forms of ownership are disrupting the performative potential of these models with very different visions of the future, compatible with pre-existing models of morality and social prestige. This allows us to call into question assumptions that drive forms of economic development, illuminating how these policies are practiced and experienced locally. Maybe there's a problem here with equating too many things, of overextending an idea. Specificity is lost, cultural forms are essentialized. After all, the inclination to explain familiar globalized phenomena in terms of features of a culture known only to anthropologists is a well-trodden analytic path. And although that need not discredit it as an approach, it means that I should try harder, a critic might venture, to avoid a sense of essentialism. There is violence, some might say, in making things equivalent of elevating the temporary possession of land with the temporary possession of commodities and resources. While others have indeed pointed to the subtle differences between debt, lending, borrowing, and the pooling of services and goods amongst friends and family in different spheres in Mongolia. Transactions between friends do not produce debt in the same way that monetary transactions and loans do. These transactions are more akin to what may be called inactions, for which the language of obligation and expectation are more suitable. The concept of debt, on the other hand, only applies to particular sets of institutional formations within a given political economy. Comparing these different forms of exchange may well be to fall prey to so-called primordial debt theory, equating money and its concept of debt with the sacrificial settling of debts in ritual. And as Graeber has argued, sacrifice was rarely, if ever, conceived as a matter of settling an existential debt to the gods. Rather, it was seen as an acknowledgement of debts that could not be paid. Mongolian herders may not be in a position of debt to the spiritual owners of the landscape to which they have usufructory access. Being custodians to their masters is not the same thing as being in debt to someone who has granted you a loan. Highlighting the difference between these economic forms is to point to the wider structural inequality that determines life for those on the fringes of economic centres. It's to point to forms of political power that disable those on the periphery. It is, of course, important to acknowledge these kinds of distinctions, which are themselves often part of a wider historical geography. Experiences of debt have a long history in Mongolia, While it suffered national debts to the Soviet Union, for instance, many taxpaying individuals were financially crippled during the Manchu period when Mongolians took out loans from Chinese merchant firms. 
At the same time, we cannot always stand outside of such events, especially when they may not be experienced as such by people themselves. Equally, but from another perspective, it would be a mistake to see barter and temporary possession as somehow outside, opposite or subservient to capitalism. As Gibbs and Graham have noted, there is no inside or outside to these categories which are in fact characterised by difference and enacted through processes that overlap and intertwine. Pooling resources through friends and family, whether that be loaning money or bread, are activities that are occurring within a market economy, producing relations of obligation that structure expectations in very particular ways. The economy of temporary possession need not mean that people are engaged in an unchanging and traditional practice, as opposed to modern, growth-orientated and dynamic capitalist economies. Highlighting how so-called cultural logics work across different spheres need not imply a conservatism or lack of change, only a coherent foundation from which to navigate the larger world. And in this regard, Salins has noted that identifying cultural continuity is not the same thing as immobility, conservatism or backwardness. In fact, the strongest continuity may consist in the logic of cultural change. Economic policies can be made to speak to local concerns. So here we can begin to see an analytic space that transcends an explanation based on global similarities or one that resorts to cultural logics. Acknowledging the coexistence of economic values and practices, I think that these ideas may actually work from the inside out to shape the wider economy itself. And it's through this that we can begin to see why complex financial policies implemented to make so-called structural changes often fail to have the performative interventions that they predict. In drawing your attention to these alternating economic modalities, I've attempted to show how local concepts and practices can be a starting point from which to look at the ways in which certain policies are shaped and experienced. So while the substantivists showed how neoclassical economic principles might not fit with alternative logics and economics, I've attempted to show the way in which these local concepts and practices come to alter capitalist logics from the inside. By focusing on these different forms, we can and should, as anthropologists, use this to feed back into our understanding of the form that capitalism is taking. Alternating between singular and multiple economies is, of course, reminiscent of a classic shift in anthropology from singular progression to relativised diversity. While Fraser showed us how one story was reproduced in different myths, Malinowski chose to highlight the opposite, that different worlds, not just stories, exist, and these point to a diversity that cannot be chronicled according to a narrative of progress. My discussion concerning a singular capitalist market and its alternatives or alternating diversity echoes this idea. I hope to have shown that diversity exists within the market as temporary possession shapes the wolf economy from the inside out. Contrasting different economic modalities certainly illuminates their differences. But Malinowski also used comparison to draw his audience in. In his classic work, Argonauts, he drew comparisons between European and Trobriand valuables, between the crown jewels or heirlooms and cooler objects. 
While they shared similar kinds of value, he argued, their main point of difference was that the cooler ob- and here I quote him, the cooler objects are only in possession for a time, whereas the European treasure must be permanently owned in order to have full value. Here, like in Mongolia, temporary possession marks a different model of ownership. From the way in which herders access pasture land to the way in which people access commodities and land and pass them on to others. This way of accessing resources generates networks of exchange and obligation, and like the prestige and renown gained by exhibiting, obtaining, and passing on cooler valuables, the purchase, display, and resale of commodities gained through such loans also enhances the prestige of the owner exposing the multiple kinds of relations that go into these transactions. Now, Malinowski's comparison allowed his audience to make the connections needed in order to be able to render unfamiliar ideas and concepts within a conceptual universe that had space for them. Comparing the use of commodities gained through bank loans to pastoral forms of ownership is also a comparison that requires a certain leap of faith. It's through my description of a landscape connected and linked in a field of change that I hope to have drawn these alternating connections to the surface. In doing so, the point is not simply to show that there's diversity in the economy, but to trace how people move between and make alternatives, blurring boundaries between formal and informal, embedded and disembedded, alternative and dominant. Indeed, when financial practices are revealed to be socially diverse, including ideas about barter and temporary possession, we're presented with an alternative to what we thought the economy was in the first place, and the distinction between capitalist and alternative economies falls apart. What happens out of these new combinations cannot be anticipated, but they may well become the ground for wider forms of action in the future. What I hope to have illuminated today are the different temporalities of possession at work within the economy, which are themselves often not acknowledged by the models that seek to structure them. Only by attending to and including them as part of the same landscape can we begin to understand the form that capitalism is taking in this and other contexts. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. That was uh, very, very dense and wonderful and interesting. And I will keep with me the image of bread ovens as cooler uh, objects, uh, among other things. Um, It's the tradition here that we ask questions on the fifth floor over a glass of wine. So we are not asking any questions now but we adjourn upstairs if you can, if you're fit, walk the stairs and let uh, the lift for people who can't walk the stairs and thank you very much, that was uh, wonderful and uh, everyone please